Hey, I'm Karen Cubides, a music-obsessed entrepreneur and educator who calls Music City home. My career started in Boston, where I found my real passion, working behind the scenes in the music industry. I've had the honor of working with elite performers and educators. Consider this your go-to guide for all things healthy, wealthy, and wise. So, get comfy, because we're about to uncover some surefire ways to transform not only your career, but also your life. This is the Musician's Guide Podcast. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Musician's Guide Podcast. My name is Karen, and I am your host. I'm excited for today's interview. Um, I am sitting here with um, a client, longtime friend, in person in Nashville, um, Austin Panzer. He is better known, I would say, as a functional musician. You're an educator, bass trombonist, um, awesome person, love sushi, cold brew guy. We were talking about how um, you're going to charge now in cold brews. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's quite memorable. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you in person. And yeah. Nashville is awesome. Right? And the weather is like perfect for your shoot this week. Yeah, it was like 65 degrees. Today's a little little hotter, 70, but that's perfect. Flannel weather, black yep. jean weather, and maybe even a leather coat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. So today's conversation is going to be about like all the things. Um, I want to talk about, of course, like health and wellness. I want to talk about the functional musician. You know, trombone is like my favorite thing ever. So we'll, of course, get into some of that. Um, But before we get into all the things, I kind of want to know your story because I feel like all the things that you've done are very much a reflection of things that have happened. Um, So I'm just kind of curious for anybody that might not be familiar with your work. Like, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into music, your education and kind of what has gotten you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I'll try to keep this long story a little short, but I was growing up or I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I'm a Hoosier and I went into a public education system that had a really good music program and I actually wanted to play saxophone. Yes, and percussion, but um, I was too late to the petting zoo and the only instruments I could choose was trombone, tuba or baritone. Hmm. Couldn't play the trumpet, couldn't make a sound with French horn. And as soon as I moved the slidey thing, I fell in love and it was... Uh, my parents hated it, but they loved it. They supported me, and they were very supportive. And uh, fast forward to you know four years of marching band and honor bands and all of those things. I went to Carthage College for my undergrad uh, on tenor trombone, and then I went back to Indiana. At first, I was like, oh, I want to get out in Indiana. I want to explore. I want to experience life a little more. And then I was like, I kind of miss Indiana, and I miss my family. So I went back to uh, Indiana for my master's. And then I stayed a little longer where I started a performance diploma and I switched to bass trombone. Mm -hmm. And during that time is when things started to kind of catch up with me. I didn't take care of myself in the best way in undergrad. I was in two fraternities. I stayed up late. I got up early. I wasn't really taking care of my mental health or my physical health. And, you know, when you're young, you're pretty indestructible, or at least you feel that way. Right. And... My master's was sort of the same way too. I went from a private liberal arts school of 200 music students to IU with 2,000 music students. So, and I went from a 2,700 school to roughly 40K, you know, students. That's a huge transition and a huge switch. And I just wanted to experience things a little bit more. And so when I switched to bass trombone, I started playing in the orchestra, the jazz band. I started a brass quintet. I was playing the bass trombone part and I had a, Really nice green hoe tuning in the slide that just, it almost sounded like a tuba. So it worked really well and the sound was really unique. 
And I was preparing for Indianapolis Symphony bass trombone audition. And I was preparing for recitals. I was doing prep class. I was working on etudes. I was probably in school 6 a.m., 7 a.m. to 10 or 11 p.m. at night, pretty much five or six days a week, playing anywhere from eight to 10 hours a day. Wow. And as you can imagine, throw in academic coursework on top of that, academic classes. Sorry, I didn't start my doctor yet. Academic classes, as well as, you know, sight singing and piano and all of the all of the things we have to do in music school. I didn't really have time to take care of my health. I didn't really have time to, at least I didn't think I had time to sleep that much. Yeah. I was probably sleeping four or five, maybe six hours. It's constantly stressed, constantly, constantly anxious. And I pretty much lived in the practice room. And that caught up to me within the span of like one to two months. I don't know the exact date anymore because it seems like decades ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in jazz band and I just went to pick up my horn as we were sight reading some music for an upcoming concert. And I blew out my left forearm. I heard like a big, and I, I, oh, it was searing pain. If it was burning, it was stabby. It was not fun. Yeah. Um, Said some things, um, screened some things. And I was like, okay, I got to excuse myself. I like got to figure this out. And this kind of led me down this very frustrating but illuminating path that kind of led me down to what I'm doing today. And that single injury led into a host of different injuries that just compounded over years and years and years of bad posture, not taking care of myself, pushing myself too hard in the gym, pushing myself too hard in the practice room, not listening to my body. And I ended up injuring my left shoulder, my right shoulder. I ended up becoming so compressed in my upper body, I couldn't really breathe. And as a bass trombonist, coming from the Arnold Jacobs side of pedagogy, uh, you need that breath. And it was really hard. It was really hard. And I compensated in a lot of ways to make that breath happen. And I ended up bruising my lower lip. And actually, to this day, too, I don't talk about this too often because it's something I'm really self-conscious about. But... As I work through it more, um, I bruised my lower lip so bad that even when I just play for five minutes now, that discoloration comes back. Hmm. And granted, I'm at a different level of playing than I was before the injury. Like I would hope it was like eight years ago, but the discoloration is there, but the physical symptoms aren't there anymore, which is really nice. Instead Hmm. of like dull, achy, sharp fatigue and tingling, which all happened in that lower lip. It's just the discoloration that happens, and I can play for anywhere from three to four hours a day, and on a really good day, I can play five to six, and the next day, I'll be completely fine, which is really fascinating, but that took me a long time to get over, and during that injury cycle, it lasted about three years, and I was seeing a lot of different people. I was trying to get over it. I was blaming everybody and not holding myself accountable and you know, really looking behind the curtain with that, and I just wanted to quit. After about three years, um, I went, I continued doing a doctorate. I was teaching in local public schools in Indianapolis and South Indiana, working at Chipotle. And then I took a step back as I started my doctorate. And uh, I had a recital that fall that was very ambitious, but I could do it. I was running through the recital program the month and a half leading up to it, probably every day. And then I don't know why, but I started doing it twice a day just to make sure I had enough face. And then a week before the recital happened, that's when the bruise happened and all of these things flared up like at once, like both shoulders, my forearm, my back, my lower back was in pain. And um, I tried to bail, but, um, you know, I, I wanted to see it through and it didn't go well. 
and it was kind of like at that moment I, I kind of took that as a sign almost like okay I should really consider something else and so I went down this personal training rabbit hole I was like hmm like what can I do as a side job as I finish my coursework finish my degree to make a little bit money so I don't you know go home and live with my parents in their basement or I'm just one of those like people who move to Bloomington and stay in Bloomington their entire lives which Bloomington is a fantastic place and I totally get why you do that and the yeah. cost of living is super cheap but um, I didn't want to live I didn't want to live there forever so I went down that rabbit hole and I talked to a couple people at IU um, personal trainers at the gym a couple of people in the sports science department I almost started a master's degree there and decided not to because it's actually more intense than a music degree. It's like 60 to 80 hours a week. It's insane. Wow. But so I gained the certification and then I started going down this rabbit hole of other certifications just because it really interested me. And one of the certifications that really interested me was the corrective exercise certification that National Academy of Sports Medicine offers. And you can only do that if you have a CPT or a personal trainer certification. So once I got that, I started applying a lot of those concepts to myself because I was curious. I'm like, well, I've never tried this before. This could be really interesting. I have to learn it anyway. It's super complex material. The testing for it, they can literally ask you anything. And it's one of the hardest tests I had to take um, where they would just throw a situation at you and you kind of had to program on that moment which exercise was appropriate, why it was happening, and um, this, that, and the other. And I started making improvements. It was I was actually quite surprised and didn't believe it. I kind of refused to accept that. And... Mm. I started being able to increase my quality and quantity of sleep. I started sleeping better. I started waking up not feeling like an old man. I started being able to breathe. I It felt great to move. It felt great to do cardio and lift weights again. And I just started feeling a little happier. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a big moment for me. And it took about... Three months of that, it was really encouraging and motivating once I started seeing those little improvements. But around three to six months, I was ready to pick up the trombone again after taking that time off. And I did take probably about two months off the horn when that bruise happened. Um, and so I picked up the horn again and things were working. And I was like, okay. Now, granted, like if you think about it, I was injured for three years. I was not playing at a level that was appropriate for my level of education because of that injury. It held me back in a lot of ways. And then you throw in the lip bruise injury. It felt like I was backtracked, but I didn't care. You know, even though I had, I felt like I was playing, I wanted to, or I had to play catch up. I was just like, oh my gosh, I can make a sound. I can breathe. It doesn't feel like a complete disaster. It doesn't feel like I'm getting hit by a truck every time, which it was, which was a huge win. And then I saw other people at IU also experiencing the same thing. And granted, IU is a what, what do they call it? Like a division A school, research school, and it has a lot of resources available for its musicians and as vocalists and dancers. I think there are two physical therapists that are on faculty there. And I still saw a lot of other students struggling through that. I was going through Facebook forums and seeing other people just kind of reaching out to the public asking for help, which Facebook forums like, whew, that is a can of worms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... I, I just I just got this like calling where it's like I I want to help and some musicians some musician friends that were close to me kind of knew my interests and knew what I was doing just because I would talk to them about it you know like as my support beacon and support structure and they would ask me for a couple of personal training lessons and a couple of sessions at the gym 
And I remember this was kind of the moment things switched for me. And if he's listening, Tom Kelly, I'm calling you out. But he was like, yeah, Austin, I just want to go to the gym. You know, my posture is not great. I'm not happy with my breathing. Like, I just want to see what this is about. And I was like, cool. And we went to the gym. And after just like 25 minutes, he his posture looked fantastic. And he was like, wow, I've never felt this tall before and the guy is like six foot three so it's like (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't make sense but he's like i've never felt this tall before movement is so easy and i was like take a couple of breaths and he took a couple of breaths and he's like oh my gosh like i gotta go practice like right now and i'm like okay bye yeah (laughs) but it was just kind of that moment where i was like okay i'm onto something like i gotta do this and you know there was a lot of conceptualization seed planting of ideas and um, doing a lot of business launches or business courses and just kind of understanding what that is because I didn't have a business background. And then when COVID happened, along with continuing certifications um, through Precision Nutrition and a couple of other things, I decided if I'm going to do this, I it, this is the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's when The Functional Musician officially launched. And ever since, it's been something that I cannot stop thinking about. It's something that drives me every day. And it's something that the more I learn, the less I realize I know and the more I want to learn, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So there's like so many different avenues to approach this. But as I start to connect the dots, things are starting to make more and more sense. And I wish I would have learned this stuff 10 years ago because it would have been so life changing and would have helped me not go down that path. But I think that path was such a grateful opportunity or such a fantastic opportunity that I'm grateful for because it led me down this path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, we'll definitely save some more of like the spicy stuff for the Patreon, but going back to your time at IU, like what were your teachers saying? Or was this just part of the culture where people were just injured? Yeah. Oh man. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to, it's hard to think about that. I've, I haven't thought about that. I almost blocked it from my mind just because it was, I was also really depressed at the time and anxious and stressed just 24 seven. So it was, I take this with a grain of salt, but I, I went to a lot of different people. I had some people who uh, didn't really know much and they recognized that and they were like, here, check this resource out, check this resource out, check this resource out. I had another teacher who recommended the resources at IU, like the physical therapist. They recommended going to the uh, IU School of Health and getting a perspective there. And I also had some teachers that pushed me to ignore the pain, Hmm. wanted me to push through the pain, saying that it was an excuse for me to fail, Hmm. so to speak. And that, that hurt. And for me, when someone says... I'm doing something. If anybody knows me, you know I'm a little stubborn and I'm working on it. But it's like if someone tells me to do something and I really don't want to do it and I don't feel like the why is justifiable, I will do everything I can to not do that thing. And I had to trust my gut. You know, there were a lot there were a couple of teachers there that wanted me to continue playing through it to figure it out. I'm not injured, you're doing the right things. It's just a it's it's all in your head type of deal, but you know, even like where I'm at now, helping other musicians go through chronic pain. It doesn't matter if it's all in your head. And even though that's kind of true, because when you look at the neuroscience, the brain is involved in the perception of pain, but I don't think that's where they were coming from. I think there's, you know, maybe they thought I was telling stories to myself, or maybe I'm making up stories right now and filling in the gaps, hashtag Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, I had some, I had wide conflicting advice on a scale from push through the pain. It doesn't matter. It's part of the culture. It's part of life. Every professional musician experiences this at some point and they never give up and they never quit and they constantly push through versus take time, take a step back. Do you want to forelow your degree? Do you want to like take a year and just figure this out? Mm-hmm. And I kind of, it was a hard decision to make because I didn't know who to trust because I had so many different people I went to. I probably went to 20 or 30 and yeah. it was just at that point, I just had to kind of trust my gut. And there were a couple of people I did go to where I was like, I have all of this advice. This is what I'm thinking. I have no idea what to do. What What is your perspective? And those people, I won't name names, but were very helpful in that journey. And mm-hmm. I actually wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's so disappointing um, and stressful. And I, I'm grateful, though, that, you know, a decade later, we now have more resources and, you know, stuff like what you're doing. Because, um, yeah, I feel like there's this older school of, of training where it's very much like push through and it's all in your head and these millennials and their mental health stuff. And it's like, no, but like it's legit and real and and absolutely affecting you. Um what was the role of your ego in all of this? Because I feel like being in such a competitive program, switching from tenor to bass, which is, you know, hard. It's a legit different instrument, I would mm-hmm. argue. Um, and, you know, being young and, you know, you as being an achiever and like, you know, so driven and wanting to do so many things, like the fact that you'd invested so much time and, and resources in these degrees to do this thing and all of a sudden it was going to be taken away. Like, how, how did you navigate all of that? Oh, gosh, not very well. (laughs) I'm going to be honest. And I didn't really discover how much my ego held me back until maybe three or four years ago after I overcame that. Reflecting back, I probably would have gotten over my injury a little bit quicker if my ego didn't get in the way. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, we often go to people, different medical professionals or movement professionals or health and wellness professionals for advice, perspective, programming or help and a lot of the people I went to I had a hard time connecting to them I had a hard time believing what they were doing was working for me and I thought I knew better Hmm. with no education background in movement breathing science medical training and I was like yeah, this isn't working for me. I need something else. And granted, like reflecting like, yeah, like taking eight weeks off, I totally did. I came back and it was still there. That wasn't the solution for me. Same thing with kind of seeing the bigger picture of chiropractic care and massage therapy that I did for multiple years, chiropractic care for three years and massage therapy for one year. And granted, like it was super helpful in the, you know, helping me manage that pain, but I had no education to plug that into what that meant for my health overall, and nor were those people helping educate me on what that meant in sure. my in my in my recovery. But for me, the ego of being a musician is like I wanted to do everything and figure it out by myself. Mm-hmm. And it got to that point when I started seeing other people, I was like, okay, I can't figure this out by my own. I like, I need help. I just want it to be done. I want to go and practice. But on the other hand, too, I wasn't checking in with how I was feeling even through my recovery. Those old habits of being, before I got injured, of pushing through the pain, pushing through those physical and mental symptoms was still present and I didn't realize it. So for example, I I am an achiever and I do value what people think and I care about what people think, even though 
Hopefully when I'm older, that's not as much, not the case. <laughs> so I wanted to do the best I can. And when other people were like selling, improving and going above the above and beyond the call of duty in terms of performance, academic life, um, et cetera, et cetera, it really wanted me or really motivated me and inspired me, despite being in pain and injured, to practice more, mm. to study more, to push myself harder to for that external validation. And that wasn't the most sustainable route for me. And I think what would have happened differently if I would have been able to check my ego at the door, ask for help, accept what happened to me, which I refused to accept what happened to me because I didn't want to believe I was injured. I think I would have gotten here sooner. Would I be on the same path? I'm not sure. Probably not. But I think I would have overcome my injury, you know, maybe a year or two earlier than I did Mm because I just wanted to win a job I wanted to be a professional musician I wanted to achieve all of the things and I didn't want to take that time necessary to take a step back and do what you and I would probably describe as really difficult work and that's mental and physical health like really tuning in with yourself and figuring out what you need to do to feel better yeah and just function yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and, you know, in your experience now working with your clients, like where where does this sense of, of urgency come? Because in, in my space as well, in my practice, like people just want a three-month fix or like mm-hmm. a quick solution or in two sessions we can knock this out or this this shouldn't be happening or I'm young or whatever. Like how do you navigate people's concept of time and, you know, just setting up um, – you know, the, the groundwork for figuring out the, the why of something, creating an infrastructure so that it's actually sustainable and, um, you know, just equipping your clients and educating them on, on what is needed. Like, like, where does this urgency come from? Yeah, in terms of someone coming to me and asking for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think when you're in pain or... Maybe you're someone who is an overthinker like me or struggles with performance anxiety or whatever your specific situation is, there comes a point where you're just tired and you're fed up. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired and you're able to recognize I'm not where I want to be. I don't have that knowledge that or that plan to move forward. I'm tired of trying to figure it out by myself. I'm just going to do this. I think that's something that's really powerful. But I also think, too, from a level of just what I do, it's so much more than just helping someone recover. I'm also an educator in a sense where I'm trying to teach them and give them tools that they can use for the rest of their life. I'm also trying to help them discover who they are, discover how they move and what their body and their mind need to function and how they function so that they understand it and they know like, oh, okay, like in high stress or in periods of high stress, I tend to um, lose control of my breathing. I start, you know, having these high chest breaths. I start, you know, having a sympathetic response. I start getting a little anxious. Here are some breathing tools you can use to build some awareness and help kind of switch that. But I'm kind of going off a little beaten path here, but To answer your question, I think there comes a point where you're just ready to make a change. The timing is right and you you just do it. You're just you're just ready to go. Now, there is a level of trust there because it is there is no silver bullet. As you said, this stuff takes time. And 
working with someone over a three, five, six month period, or even a year period, that takes a lot of trust, that takes a lot of patience, and it takes a lot of courage. But for those who are willing to do that, I've noticed a couple of things. Number one, they put their ego aside. Number two, they know what they want. And they're willing to get a little outside their comfort zone and try new things maybe they haven't tried before. And Mm -hmm. those three similar factors I've seen in every single one of my clients uh, over the past couple of years, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, And in your experience with injuries, like what role does the hustle culture have in that where I don't know, like I I just feel like everybody wants to win the job by the time they're 25 or everybody Mm. feels like they're going to die when they turn 30. And it's like, where, where is this coming from and and how has it affected the kinds of injuries or maybe the amount of injuries that you're seeing? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's a really great question. And that's literally one of the main reasons I got injured because I wanted to win a job right after that performance diploma. I had no idea I was going to do a doctorate, which I'm really grateful I did. But this is something that's really, what's the word? common in our field it's something that i see all the time and it's not really biased towards any type of age like i've worked with people i've worked with juniors and seniors in high school all the way up to seasoned professionals um, in their mid to late 50s early 60s and we all have something in common we love what we do and we love improving we love well most of us love practicing and we love performing and this idea of we constantly have to hustle and grind doesn't really take into the count of the longevity of the scarcity of the jobs that are available, both from an educator standpoint and a performance standpoint. And for me, the big switch, and I think something that will be really helpful or hopefully to this audience, is that I didn't win a job when I was 25 or 26 or 27. And I got injured. And I could have quit, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because I just love, I love trombone. I love what I do. I love making the, those sounds. But something that I wish would have been ingrained more in earlier in my education, undergrad, master's, all the way, you know, all the way up to my doctorate is that because there's a scarcity of jobs, longevity and sustainability have to be part of the equation. Hmm. You know, and I'm not talking, I'm definitely talking financially, you know, multiple income streams, all of that stuff. But really what I'm talking about is just health. And a lot of people, or a lot of, I've seen so many musicians while I was pursuing my degrees at IU because I was there for nine years. (laughs) I saw a lot of people come in extremely motivated, gifted, beautiful sounds. I hear them and I'm like, wow, like freshmen coming in. By the time they're juniors and seniors, they're doing something else because they're burnt out. They grinded too hard. They didn't check in with their emotional, physical health. And now they want to do something else. Likewise, with doctoral students, I see so many doctoral students start a doctoral degree extremely motivated, ready to learn, ready to make an impact, ready to go get their dream teaching job. And two years in, they're quitting or they're switching, you're switching degrees or or they found a job that, you know, pays money. And once you start making, you know, a livable income, it can be hard to sacrifice that. So I think if we just start considering the longevity and sustainability of, Not, oh, if I win a job, but when I win a job. That's going to be something that can be really helpful if we start looking at the bigger picture. Because for me, I'm like, I'm no longer like putting an age 
based on when I want a job. It's a matter of, okay, like I'm just going to show up for myself every day best I can. I'm going to continue to improve on the trombone and work on my things. And at some point, because I'm trusting the process, I'm constantly improving and I'm enjoying what I do, that job's going to be there for me because I'm never going to quit. It's going to be something that's more sustainable for me. But if we necessarily don't take that into mind, it can be easy to burn out or become so mentally exhausted or physically exhausted and fatigued that playing the instrument comes a real physical or emotional challenge. And I would argue in the bigger scheme of things, if that's the case, that's not going to be something that is going to be very sustainable if the average person who takes auditions and wins is, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a huge investment in time, money, resources, and as long as we just keep on that train, I feel like it's going to be something that can be, if you really truly enjoy what you do, it's something that is going to come along to you, even if it's not going to come along to you when you want it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And how are you still checking in with yourself? Because, you know, injuries, habits, addictions, all of that is is pretty cyclical. Mm. Um, and it's easy to, I'm going to say easy, but it's available to you to go back to old habits and that sort of thing. Um, you know, you currently being ABD and, and trying to finish your doctorate and moving to a new city and you were part of Tone and all these different things. Um, how have you kept yourself healthy? And also, what are some examples of you falling back into old habits? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a great question. Well, we are creatures of habit. I mean, that's what humans are. And we always resort back to what's comfortable to us. And for me... I love staying up late and playing video games. I love drinking IPAs. I love eating a whole pizza, pepperoni, extra pepperoni, dip it in ranch. <laughs> like Yum. I could eat a whole pizza in a in a in a heartbeat with a six pack of IPA. But <laughs> I digress. But but going back to your question, it's it's a learning process. And for me, I think what makes my program so powerful is that I really try to practice what I preach. And I try to be the example for my clients. And granted, every client is going to be different. They're going to have a different strategy. They're going to have different routines. They're going to have different habits that they have in their life based on their situation. But something that's been really powerful is just asking myself the question, like, how can I best show up for myself in this situation? So for the past, gosh, three and a half or four years, I have a morning routine and I have an evening routine. And how I check in every day is I wake up. I'll do a 20-minute meditation. I've done a 20-minute meditation now for about two years. I used to do 40 minutes a day, but that's that's a lot. And I just got really tired and I would sleep all the time. <laughs> <laughs> too relaxed. Yeah, too relaxed. <laughs> so I, w- I wake up, I do about 15 to 20 minutes of meditation, then I'll do 10 minutes of movement and breathing. And then at that point, I'm usually good to go. And then sometimes I'll do journaling. The more I journal, the more in tune with my spiritual self I become. And that's something that you and I have talked about. That's a real challenge is how can I better show up for myself with my journaling practice? Just because it's something that when I do it, I'm just on top of my game in every aspect of my life. But it's really hard to do because after that meditation and movement, I'm ready to go. And I'm, I already planned my goals the night before. So I'm just ready to go tackle the day. But then throughout the day, I'll check in with myself. Because I practice meditation so much, I can... Uh, in a couple of minutes, decompress pretty and destimulate myself pretty quickly, which is a really good skill I think we all can work to develop. But in the evening, I think what's been the biggest difference maker is 
moving for 15 to 20 minutes and then doing five minutes of breathing before I go to bed. And the 15 to 20 movements at night, the morning is designed to just wake you up. The night is designed to tackle any physical symptoms that may have presented itself through the day or improve your movement. For me, I'm working on postural stuff right now. And it's really helpful in just decompressing at the end of the day. And I think that's something I really needed in grad school because I would just work, study, work, study, practice, work, study, go to bed. And I would still be in like this work mode. My mind would be going a million miles a minute. I'd wake up with nightmares. Mm -hmm. But now if I spend that time to decompress, it's I sleep like a baby. And I dream of awesome things sometimes. Um, and it's, a really, it's, it's really rejuvenating in that way. Mm-hmm. But it's something that that is real. Like it again, it like grows, and I have to check in with myself on a regular basis. And yeah, there are times where I don't do evening mobility. Like for example, over the past week, I've spent probably thirty-two hours in the car. You know, uh, one of, before I came to Nashville, I drove up to Northern Indiana. I had to pick up some of my clothes that I stored over the summer. That was about a five-hour drive. Then we drove down to Nashville. Uh, my fiance Rebecca and I. Uh, it was about an eight-hour drive. Um, and then we'll have a four four hour drive tomorrow. So my body was feeling kind of tight, you know, so I got back and uh, normally I would do mobility, but I was just so mentally exhausted. I didn't. I woke up the next day and I was a little tight. I had to spend a little bit more time in the morning opening things up, working on my breath, working on my movement. But I think a better example, too, would actually be a couple of weeks ago. Um, I got to sub with Cincinnati Symphony playing Mahler, too. It was the best experience I probably ever had musically but but I bring this up because on Saturday I woke up things weren't working right Saturday was the concert Sunday was the concert we had a double on Friday double on Thursday I think we had a double on Wednesday gosh it seems it feels like three months ago this is crazy we might have had a double on Wednesday but we had all these doubles right and, I, and outside of the rehearsals I was studying and doing score studying I was really trying to be on top of my game and um, I woke up Saturday morning. I was tight. I was in a little bit of pain. Uh, I was dehydrated. I didn't sleep well. I go to the trombone and it was it was just not working. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Like this, this can't happen. So I rechecked in with myself and I realized I didn't drink enough water yesterday or the day before. I didn't get a good night's sleep. I wasn't really taking care of my body nutritionally. I, I didn't eat enough the previous day yeah, uh, and I didn't move enough because when you're doing doubles, you know, you're driving to rehearsal from rehearsal, you're sitting down in rehearsal. It's a lot of sitting yeah. and then you throw in playing on top of that. It doesn't matter what instrument you're playing. That's a load on the body and the nervous system. So all of this caught up. So I spent about an hour in the morning recovering. I drank some Pedialyte. I was really focused on my hydration consistently over the day. I was, I meditated. I breathed. I did a lot of mobility, probably an hour and a half. Um, throughout the day just you know maybe every like hour I would do about 10 minutes of mobility and I went back to the trombone and things were how they were and it was a huge eye-opener for me because I was able to apply that to a real-life professional situation but it's also a good reminder that if we don't regularly check in with ourselves and hold ourselves accountable for the simple habits in our life like movement hydration sleep habits your sleep hygiene what you're doing in the morning it has a huge impact on how you play. Mm. And granted, like I'm still at a point in my life where, yeah, there are things I'm not happy about with my playing that I'm constantly going to go for and improve. But I think the biggest takeaway from this lesson was that if you have the tools to take care of your body, or sorry, let me start over. If you have the tools to become aware 
and reflect on why your body and your mind feel a certain way and you also have the tools you can use to perform maintenance on yourself and give yourself what you need it's something that will positively impact your playing and that whole bad playing day wasn't because i had a heavy playing week my face felt fine things just weren't working but then after that Mm -hmm. everything connected and was balanced and i was able to feel confident going into that performance and that when that performance just as an orchestra was one of those concert experiences that i'll remember forever the energy everybody was bringing with the focus the audience it was just man it's like it's intense yeah i love that so i want to do a, a quick turn um because you you've said interchangeably movement mobility um, and I just want to simplify it a little bit for anybody listening because, um, and you'll, you're the expert, but you know, exercise is very different than movement is a type of exercise mobility. And I just feel like as young folks, me, not much knowing what you do, um, specifically, like, like I said, you being the expert to me, I feel like we think of mobility as something you need as an older person, mm. or maybe we can put it under the category of like stretching. Um, but as I understand it, you know, mobility is giving you a range of motion. Um, and help me understand like why or explain more what that is but also like why don't we think that we need it if we're humans with bodies for our lifespan um where where is that disconnect of like oh i just maybe only need to stretch or maybe i don't need to stretch or maybe this is something that you know our grandparents or our older parents need to worry about more so than us younger folks yeah oh man that's a great question and i don't know if i'm gonna have a great answer But I do have a couple of thoughts that I think might be helpful. I think when we think about mobility, mobility can be defined as flexibility plus strength. And flexibility and strength can be built in a lot of different ways. When we think about strength, we can think about weight training. We can think about certain yoga poses like downward dog, strengthening, you know, the posterior delts, the back of your shoulders or your lower back or your lats. Or, and we can think about flexibility a lot like static stretching or active stretching or dynamic stretching. And we can talk about those definitions too sure. if um, we want to. But I think something that's a missing link in a lot of modern exercise programs, even yoga, strength training, Pilates, is this missing link of mobility. And when we think about, when I think about mobility, I really think of just our ability to move within our full ranges of motion. And maybe, you know, some of you listeners out there are like, what the heck is a range of motion? Just imagine like lifting your arm above your shoulder as much as you can. That's going to be a range of motion that's going to differ from person to person. But as humans, physiologically, we all have a baseline on how we should move. We have certain milestones that medical professionals, physical therapists, occupational therapists all agree on that's a good baseline for most human beings. Now, obviously, this is a curve. There are going to be some exceptions based on a lot of different factors, such as genetics, bone densities, heights, weights, et cetera, et cetera. But the mobility component, I, I want to encourage everybody to think of as a form of recovery and what is, again, lacking in modern day strength training and programming and yoga is this recovery aspect that looks at that can look at individual parts of our system and when i say your system how our body moves as a whole and perform maintenance on them if they are something that 
if it is something that's constricting our movement. But on the other hand, too, what I want people to consider is the link between movement and breathing. So if I'm really constricted, for example, in my upper body, that's going to affect how my rib cage, is, rib cage moves. If I have a really tight lower back because I just sat for 12 hours in an opera and I have to go and take the world's most efficient breath, it's going to be a struggle because I'm not going to be able to expand in that lower back um, pelvic floor area. So mobility is both a way to increase our movement quality as a way and, and in a way to increase the way the efficiency and efficacy of how we breathe. And I think those are both linked very deeply. And I can't talk about movement without talking about breathing. And I can't talk about breathing without talking about posture. But maybe in our society, you know, when we feel young, we feel like we don't need these things. Mm-hmm. When we get older, our body gets used to what we do. Our body is constantly adapting on a cellular level, cellular level <laughs> to our environment. And we can get used to desensitizing ourselves to this physical or mental symptoms that are that our body or our brain are, are trying to send us. And I would argue that if you've never done a movement routine or even yoga, Alexander technique or strength training or cardio or, you know, mobility, for example, try it for three months because I bet you don't know how good you can feel um, until you start sensitizing to yourself to the actual physical symptoms that your body's sending you. Mm -hmm. And then when you start realizing it, start seeing those symptoms, then we ask the question, what can I do? Why is this symptom happening? Uh, why might have this occurred? This can start pointing us down a direction that's going to help us in the long run, I think, in terms of movement. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, And, you know, in in the music space particularly, um, where do you think, again, having gone to IU, like the the whole pain, no pain, no gain kind of vibe. Like, like where does that come from? And, and maybe why is that so idiosyncratic to the brass culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I feel like other people are going to have better answers. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I feel, you know, early, this probably comes from just older pedagogical perspectives, comes from an older generation where maybe we didn't have this knowledge we have about movement and breathing. Or we didn't have this knowledge on pain. And pain science is still a relatively young field. but there's And there's still so much more to learn. But it's also completely different than it was 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And in the brass world, there are schools of thought that teachers learn from teachers who learn from teachers. And those teachers pass down information that worked for them. And if it works for their students, those students are going to teach their students that as well. And we come, it can be very easy, and in the health and wellness space, it can be easy to take all of that information out of context and forget the bigger picture of things. Mm-hmm. And I think reminding ourselves of what that is can be really helpful. But it's something that, you know, is very common depending on what pedagogical school you're looking at. And I think it's something we do have to be cautious and wary of because it can something that can be very debilitating. Mm-hmm. And if there is, you know, just like with health and wellness, if there's, a, uh, sorry, just like with the brass world, if there's a brass teacher saying this is the exact way you have to do it no matter what, just like with health and wellness, if there's a practitioner that's saying that, you know, I think it's time to question whether or not, you know, that's something that you want to listen to, uh, as you would say, challenge the source. Yeah, 
for sure. Um, so moving into the functional musician a little bit and, okay. and what you do. Um, we were actually talking about this at lunch and uh, I'd love for you to clarify um, from a, a sports science perspective, the difference between a certification and a certification of completion. Um, Cause I feel like in the health and wellness space, like everybody and their mom, especially in the pandemic is getting certified. Like mm-hmm. you just watch a couple of videos and you get a certificate saying you pass something and then they give you like a little logo, you put it in your signature and all of a sudden everybody thinks you're certified in this. Personally, having gone through the Enneagram, which was like fucking three years and a bajillion dollars and total reconstruction of the brain it feels like um (laughs) i there's so much gravitas to like being certified in something and and not that it makes you an expert per se but there's a degree of blood sweat and tears that has gone through you acquiring a particular piece of information versus watching some videos on a friday night and getting a diploma so like for something as serious as um I wouldn't say like medical advice, but like something pertaining to the physical body, pertaining to giving people advice, um, to helping them make more informed decisions. Um, can you help like differentiate that for folks that are confused as to why maybe, or not confused, but maybe um, curious as to what sets your business apart from all the millions of wellness um, companies out there? Yeah. Oh man, fantastic. And we did talk about this. It was a, it was a spicy lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so a certificate of completion is a certificate that's awarded at the end of some type of class, course, event, workshop, or something to be like, hey, like thank you for showing up. You did a great job. Like here you go. You can you can you can put this on your wall. It's for you know for your own personal use type of thing. And people who award completion of cert or certificates of completion usually set that boundary that say this is not a certification. You cannot do X, Y, and Z. This is for educational purposes or display purposes or personal use only type of thing. Sure. And a cert or a certification is something that requires. Uh, number one, unfortunately, a fee to some organization that's teaching the certification. You go through some sort of course, workshop, educational event, and you are putting in a lot of hours learning deep content. Likewise, on the other hand, too, there's also field experience in applying that information in real life scenarios. Yeah. And I think that's the biggest difference is that when I was doing my CPT, like part of that certification process was working underneath another personal trainer who's worked in the field for 10, 15, 20 years for eight to 12 weeks. So I could actually have feedback from an experienced professional. I could work in that environment for a couple of months before I actually go out and start personal training on my own. And something that I'm working, I'm working on a biomechanics certification now, and uh, that's a huge umbrella. You could go a million different directions. So take that certification title with a grain of salt, please. But what's really cool about every certification I take is that you have information and you have action. And I think something that gets really quite foggy on Instagram and social media in the health and wellness space is just because you have the research available doesn't necessarily mean you have the experience or doesn't necessarily mean that you put in the time to implement that information in a way that's going to help people. And these certifications are really hard. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of, how long did your Enneagram certification take? Three years. Three years. Yeah. 
most of the certification processes or certifications that I took took at least six months for each one. Um, the CES one took a year just because you have to literally know what happens when you abduct your shoulder, what's going on with the lat, what's going on with the chest, what's going on with the hips, um, just as an example. So th it takes a lot of time, dedication, and patience to learn something like that, as well as applying it to your studio, applying it to your knowledge, and integrating it into what you use to teach. And something that actually kind of changed. I know we didn't go this direction, but when I was starting to accrue certifications earlier, and this was one of the first conversations we had when we started working together, was like, why do you feel like you need to pursue three to four certifications at a time? And I was just so obsessed with pursuing the certifications because I wanted the external validation that I was doing something good. But something that switched with working with you some point is that I started realizing like it's not the quantity of certifications that I get it's the quality mm -hmm. and really mastering that content so I'm really taking my time with each certification that I get now to make sure that I really truly ingrain that information and implement it into either my one-on-one -on -one recovery program or future um, courses or programs that I teach just so I have that baseline and I think having that is really important and taking the time to do so yeah i agree i also feel like uh for certifications you have to pass a test like people have to like know that you are able to do it and as everybody knows on this podcast i didn't pass the first time on my enneagram because it's hard and it's and it was helpful actually to not and and i almost feel like so much better and so much more proud to know that not only do you have to pass a certain standard and be able to you know do kind of like a residency and do you know all these observations and have people watch you and coach you and mentor you um but you also have to do continuing education and i think that again showing up to a, a workshop or a course and doing something and having a participation ribbon does not give you the expertise to help somebody with that it might be helpful for you or it might be fulfilling a tenure process or helping your resume but i feel like that distinction is so important especially in the wellness space because we're we all have access to all of this information which is awesome we live in a world of technology but what to do with that is where the experts come in and i feel like we would save so much time if we just went right to the source Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. man well said well said and we'd also save so much potential not what not backfire potential damage to future students or colleagues or friends i see a lot of people out there who do help or try to help people and they take things out of context and um that doesn't necessarily put the students or their the people that they work with best interests in mind right so um, I know we can talk forever, but um, <laughs> to kind of start reining it in, um, tell us a little bit about your injury recovery program, because it's pretty unique. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm happy to. So this is something that's evolved over the last three years, so to speak. And it's very different than it was when it started. And every, what's really cool about this is every person that goes through the program adapts a little bit more. But basically what happens is someone will come to me with some sort of physical symptom or chronic injury or pain. Um, and that's a huge umbrella for everything. And what will happen is they'll enroll into my program and then I'll send, I'll take them through some movement assessments. I'll take them through a playing assessment where I'll watch them play their instrument in a variety of different angles and then a habit assessment. And based on those three assessments, 
it tells me a lot. It basically tells me everything that I need to know at that point. And then also I'm picking uh, their brain on what their goals are, what they hope to achieve, why they want to make a change, why they feel like this is the right moment, and just trying to see where they're at, what's going through their head. And I think it's really important. And based on that, what I do is every single week, I will structure a weekly routine. Again, going back to the morning morning routine and evening routine, as well as a couple of other different habits that uh, they're implementing based on their situation. And as we meet one-on-one on Zoom every week, I adjust that every week to help them progress. And if they get to a point where, because pain is so complicated, sometimes flare-ups happen and we take a step back. If that does happen in a week, I also do provide a huge level of accountability. I have them fill out an accountability sheet. I check with them throughout the week just to make sure everything's going smoothly. Um, And if that happens, I can take a step back and ask why and adjust accordingly. And that's something that's really effective. And what's really cool about working with someone with three months is like, unfortunately, like, it's really hard to make a change one to two sessions, like a lasting change. You can get temporary changes where you're opening the window for someone to experience less pain or experience more movement, more breathing capacity. But that window often shuts if someone does not implement that regularly into their life and you don't progress that to a certain point. So for me, I really set the boundary of really, I don't do one-on-ones too often. I rarely do them unless I know I can help. Like if it's just a small adaptation, a small change, and I'm like, oh yeah, let's just adjust this, isn't this, and you're good to go. But usually it's a deeper thing that requires, requires about two to three months. And around the four to six week mark, most people improve with their the amount of pain that they're feeling in their situation and by week six to eight they're making huge changes in their posture they've already made changes in their breathing their movement quality has improved a lot and then at that point we're starting to integrate that into the practice room and starting to fill in the gaps of what they need to move out of the three months because for me when i work with someone i want them to leave the three-month program having an established idea of what they need to do to take care of their physical and their emotional health mm-hmm. now i'm not a i'm not a therapist i'm not a psychologist and when i say physical mental or when i say or mental health i'm really just talking about the ability to recognize what feelings you're feeling the ability to check in the ability to recognize when you're becoming overstimulated the ability to figure out kind of what you need to do to just feel good from Mm -hmm. from a mental perspective and then physically of course like if their situation does come back i haven't done my job if they're like what the heck is going on you know part of this process is me learning you know giving them training wheels and slowly taking the training wheels off so that you know when they're in a real life situation and they're starting to experience tension or tightness or starting to go down that rabbit hole of old habits they could be like oh yeah Like, I have something to go to. I know what's going on. I know exactly what I need to do when I get home tonight after this intense Dvorak three-hour rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. And I I find that way that adds a level of sustainability to someone's life that I never got working with other medical professionals. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I love that so much. Um, So I definitely want to talk to you about um, your business training. Um, I want to talk more about IU. And I want to get even deeper with your injury, but I want to do that on, on the Patreon. Um, is there anything else that you want to share here on the public forum that, um, you, that we missed or that you want to make sure you share? 
Yeah, uh, I would say if you're someone who's going through an injury or you're someone who has experienced chronic pain for a long time, even if it's not me, ask for help. Try to figure out your, like, don't try to figure it out on your own. If you can, ask for help because it speeds the situation along. It takes pressure off of yourself and you're working with someone that hopefully can understand where you're coming from and guide you to a place that you want to be. And if, if there's one thing you take away from that, like if I can get past my injuries, like you can get past yours. And it all starts with asking for help. Mm-hmm. Love that. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me on Instagram at The Functional Musician. I post a free mobility routine every Monday and I also post a lot of free content related to that. And you can find me at www.thefunctionalmusician.com. Um, and I, uh, you can also... Nope, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just keep it IG um, and website. And I always say this, but like I legit one time had someone give their address. I was like, no. <laughs> no, don't no. don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're based in Cincinnati. Yes, yes. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks, Austin, for, for this conversation. That's been awesome. And um, I'm hopeful that, you know, whoever is listening and, and in pain will, will feel less alone, if nothing else. And I think we... All of us have been injured and experienced that, and it's so lonely and terrible. And and thankfully now we have so many tools and resources like you available. So um, grateful for all that you're doing. 